I'm Todd McKay. This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. And we've got Tom Korski back on the show to chat. He's a senior reporter at the investigative journalism website, Blacklock's Reporter. He watches Ottawa like a hawk. You know, watching a hawk on a fence post and anything in the field moves? That's kind of how I imagine uh, Tom Korski. He, he, uh, nothing escapes his view. Thanks for chatting me, uh, with me today, Tom. How are you doing? It's my pleasure. I've always wanted to be hawk-like. <laughs> I should be clear. In terms of vigilance, not appearance. Uh, that was, uh, you got to be careful with compliments, I guess, hey? No, All right. Good. I'll take it. <laughs> In terms of appearances and what's actually happening, boy, it's a blurry and rapidly moving picture on uh, Bill C-10. And for those who need a quick refresher, this is a bill that the Trudeau government is bringing forward to uh, allow the CRTC, the broadcasting uh, governing body and regulator, to regulate content on the internet. The government says that, yeah, we need this to keep an eye on things and perhaps more importantly, make sure Netflix and others are giving lots of money to uh, Canadian content uh, providers or creators, I should say. Uh, critics say this is an assault on free speech and that people who have opinions the government doesn't like, uh, they could have their licenses pulled uh, for what they say on the internet. That's the real Coles notes. But Tom, where where is C10 at now? Cabinets really dropped the hammer on that bill, Todd, in the House of Commons. They've introduced one gag order after another to get that bill really frog marched out of the Commons Heritage Committee into final debate in the House of Commons. It will pass. They have votes from Quebec that will ensure it will pass in the House of Commons. In theory, the fate of the bill in the Senate would be slightly more uh, difficult to predict, but for the fact that the Senate has literally uh, not rejected a government bill in 25 years. They are the most collegial uh, legislative body in the English-speaking world. They have not said no to any government in 25 years. So the bill will get through the House. It will pass the Senate. It will become law. As you mentioned, why is it significant? This is the first time ever. It's never happened in Canada before. It hasn't happened in most English-speaking countries where a federal government has attempted to regulate legal content on the Internet, in this case, for instance, YouTube videos. Yeah, and I think it's important to differentiate that from illegal content. If you're slandering people, if you're putting up terrible things like uh, child porn, uh, there are lots of ways that uh, you can pay big consequences for that sort of thing. This is a, a very different kettle of fish. Listen, often we try to avoid getting into process because people find first reading, second reading, all of committee, uh, there's a risk uh, that it becomes boring. But in this case, the government invoked something called closure. Can you tell us about that and what happened there? This was a very rare order. In fact, no cabinet has issued this order in 21 years. It does not happen every day. What they did was the conservatives were admittedly filibustering this bill in the Heritage Committee. They don't like the bill. Uh, that's why their electors sent them to Ottawa, was to oppose bills that their voters don't like. That's called doing your job. But cabinet did something unusual. 
They passed a House order, first time since uh, in 20, 21 years, that forced the committee to wrap it up. They, there were MPs voting on amendments to that bill. They hadn't even read. They hadn't been announced. They were not known to the general public. They were not released in any sort of legal text. That's a little shaky. You can't have MPs or senators voting on bills they haven't read where they can't see the legal text, but it happened. And they reported the committee, uh, the committee reported the bill out, went to the House of Commons. They dropped another hammer. Cabinet said, now we're going to wrap this up. We're going to force a vote on this as quickly as we can. That's enough talking. Just vote now. Then it will proceed to the Senate, where we expect cabinet will do exactly the same thing. What's the effect of that? Well, the effect, of course, is to make sure the bill becomes a law. But the effect is also to alarm a lot of people, because process does matter. This is a government that was reelected with one-third of the popular vote. That's one-third. Two-thirds of the electors didn't vote for them. So it gets a little... It gets a little strained when you pull these procedural tricks to make sure that you get your bill into law. There is no one really in particular who asked for this bill. There are some lobbyists who like it. There's a lot of questions about the bill, including by former chair, vice chair of the Canadian Radio Television Telecommunications Commission that will be mandated to enforce it. As a former federal judge said, it looks like censorship to me, but it will become law. And there we are. Will there be a price to be paid? That's up to the voters. But certainly there'll be a price, I think, Todd, for the Minister of Heritage, Steve Gibo. I don't think he read the bill. I don't think he understands how the CRTC or the Broadcasting Act works. He's just the minister in charge. I don't think I'm being cruel or unfair to him. He doesn't strike me as a diligent, knowledgeable legislator. I think he carried this ball for someone in the prime minister's office. They wanted to get it done and they will get it done. Yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't trade spots with minister Gibo uh, when he had to put out a statement recently saying that uh, he misspoke in the media and failed to describe accurately what was in the bill. That's a pretty unusual thing. I know that's a little bit inside baseball, but I'm sure PMO had to approve it if not enforce uh, the release of that statement. So I suspect his life is not super fun right now. I, it's interesting. I want to comment on uh, your point about uh, MPs voting on amendments they haven't even seen, let alone have been disclosed to the public. Recently, just a block from me, uh, City Hall was going to rezone a property. Frankly, I couldn't have cared less. But they, they notified all of us neighbors. We all got a say on it. And this was a rezoning a little corner of property. Here we're changing a major law that very smart people uh, have at least opinions that these uh, these could uh, these laws could lead to censorship and an erosion of free speech. And then we're not only talking about issues of censorship; we're essentially censoring the debate on it. It seems like a very poor process of a lack. Even if you liked the legislation, it's hard to. It would be hard to argue that this is a full and transparent and accountable process. But here's where I, I'm, I'm going to stay on the process just a little bit because I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about something. The reason they're rushing this through from a procedural perspective is because when an election is called, all bills that are before the House that haven't passed essentially die. doesn't mean they have to stay dead. They can always be resurrected. 
and go through the process and pass afterwards. But clearly the Liberals are planning to do an election and clearly they want this to pass before the election. The thing that I don't understand is why? Why are they in such a rush? If you were rushing stuff in order to make sure vaccines can be delivered in time, if they were rushing through financial <laughs> uh, uh, measures to make sure the budget passes and Canadian forces get paid or something, if there was a time crunch, I could understand it. But I, this is not a rhetorical question. I'm honestly wondering, what is the huge rush here? I think there's a couple of points, Todd. One of them is the longer a contentious bill like this sits out there, the greater the opposition grows. It doesn't make your job any easier. And who wants a more difficult job if they can do it more easily? I think the other point is the scope of this bill is quite breathtaking. The fine points of, you know, whether uploaded user-generated content on YouTube will lead to censure and penalties and public hearings of CRTC and regulation. Just forget about that. The internet is not under the government control. In most countries, and the countries that do control them are unpleasant places where no one wants to live. This cabinet decided that it should regulate the internet. Now they will say that this is all for the public good, but don't governments always say that? Since 1995, going way back to uh, Industry Department Task Force, in those days, they, they still called it the superhighway, the information superhighway. And there was a task force. The chair of it was a man named Johnson, who later became governor general. And they said, hands off. It's not a highway. The Internet is not a road where you have to regulate the traffic and make sure that you grade the bypasses. It's not like that. It's much more profound than that, which is why people, a lot of people, and these are often very ordinary, everyday people, have very strong feelings about their internet. It's their video. It's my comment. It's my blog, my Facebook post. And the government wants to get its hands on that. Now, Minister Gibo has talked about a whole range of regulations, but this is the first foot in the door. And there's something very 1975 about it, isn't it? The Department of Canadian Heritage and a regulatory agency across the river in Gatineau, Quebec, are going to regulate the Internet in Canada, in a G7 country. Are you kidding me? By the way, I want to say something about process. I sympathize. I do. I empathize with people who find process tedious. I find it tedious. But it's just like you know all the rules in the CFL playbook. March 13th, 2020. Remember this date because your grandchildren will. <laughs> They'll ask. On March 13th, 2020, a wartime spending bill went to cabinet and then it went to the House of Commons. This is 48 hours after the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. It was a bill to grant cabinet wartime spending powers, which they subsequently used to borrow and spend two-thirds of a trillion dollars. They spent more money than Parliament spent in the Second World War. There was no text of the bill, Todd. There was literally not a single MP who had read that bill. It passed the House of Commons 10.30 in the morning. It passed the Senate by lunch. It was signed into law before tea time at Rideau Hall. No MP read the bill. I know this for a fact because I couldn't see a copy of the bill. I remember hectoring someone at the journal's branch 
And I said, are you kidding me? They just passed a bill into a law in about 90 minutes flat. And no one said it. There was one MP later after the fact, Scott Reed, member of the Conservative Caucus here in the Ottawa Valley. And he said, boy, did we get hosed. They were frightened. They were scared of the pandemic. Cabinet said, boys, you leave it up to us. You just sign the mortgage on the farm and we'll do all the thinking. And that's exactly what they did. The kids are going to be paying interest on that for the next 50 years. That's process. And there's a price to be paid for skipping process. I know it's uh, often tedious, but the reason it's there is so we can have a little bit of uh, sober thought and somebody can point out the problems. You can work it through when you fire it through. Otherwise, you find out the problems when you're actually on the road. That's a tough way to find it. But okay, listen, we've been talking about some pretty heavy stuff. I think we got a, well, I, you know, this one's heavier too, but I feel like we're just going to be able to make fun of it more. And I feel like we need a little levity here. So the Canada Infrastructure Bank. Man, those guys have some problems over there. But let's start at this point. <laughs> what exactly is the Canada Infrastructure Bank? The Canada Infrastructure Bank was created by Parliament in 2017. They gave them $35 billion of your money. The idea was to open an office in Toronto, and they were going to get consultants, and they were going to attract private money into public works. Why does that matter? Well, the thinking was, if we can get private money in public works, then the taxpayer doesn't have to pay the whole charge. It'll be cheaper in the long run. A couple of problems emerged right away. Number one, it didn't work. They, they, did, they got zero money. They're, they have completed no projects. They are now into year four, the number of projects completed by the Canada Infrastructure Bank with their $35 billion is zero. The second problem was they like secrets. They're owned by the taxpayer. You paid for it, but they like secrets. Do you know you can find out how much the chair of the Bank of Montreal is paid? It's called an annual report. It's a publicly traded company. If you want to know how much the CEO of the Royal Bank received in bonuses, stock options, and other gratuities that made a nice life for him. You can look that up. It's an annual report. But you can't find it out for the bank you own, my friend. The Canada Infrastructure Bank will not release what we know are seven-figure schedules for bonuses based on performance, to which you would say, but what performance? They've got nothing to show for it in four years. No, no, my friend, We million-dollar bonuses have been paid. March 23rd, the Commons Infrastructure Committee has had enough. This was a unanimous vote. All parties voted for it, 11-0. They passed an order. This is the effect of an order of Parliament, which is the effect of a court order. It can be enforced by a bailiff. Their order was to the Canada Infrastructure Bank. Hey, smart boys, we want to know all your executive pay bonuses and perks since 2017. We want names and we want numbers. To which the Infrastructure Bank replied, drop dead. We will give you nothing. They will not take reporters' calls. They will not respond to the order. They are in defiance of a House of Commons committee order. And they're getting away with it. Only, only, my friend, only at a publicly owned bank would that occur. 
Oh, there's so much to unpack here. So first of all, listen, I'm not a construction uh, engineer. I'm not, you know, I'm not a genius in project management. But if you gave me $35 billion, I feel like I could at least build a treehouse. You know, you could build a sewer, maybe a couple of sidewalks. Uh, yeah, it, even it, even with the price not, of like plywood right now. now. Yeah, like we could slap together something, right? You and me, we could do it. This is ridiculous. Not a space program. I, I, as they say in Nova Scotia, it is not rocket surgery. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, but here's the thing. So. It's interesting. Those salaries, there does seem to be a story behind this. They paid $3.4 million in salaries, but they paid $3.8 million in termination benefits, according to something I read on Black Blocks Reporter. I, again, I, uh, nobody's going to confuse me with, uh, with Warren Buffett in terms of financial management, but it strikes me as odd when you pay people more to leave than you pay people to work it seems That's like they've got a they real problem through, here they, they they went through three chief executives in a year so and they all had had some contracts we know for instance the first guy who was appointed ceo of the crown of the canada infrastructure bank his base salary was six hundred thousand dollars a year that's more than the prime minister of canada or the chief justice of the supreme court you'd say man this is clearly a person of high character and capability well, he didn't last his full term. He left abruptly. And they won't tell us what bonus he was paid. We can see the schedule of bonuses. It was up to over a million a year. Did Pierre Lavallee receive a million a year on top of his 600000 Well, that's what the committee asked for. And the Crown Infrastructure Bank said drop dead. It's only money, Todd. Yeah, you know, in this one, this story brings an interesting distinction between what happens when it's taxpayers' money and what happens when it's your own money. Taxpayers' money flowed in here to the tune of $35 billion, but when they look for private investors, everybody was home washing their hair. It's kind of telling when people don't want to invest their own money. This Crown Bank is not popular. There are Opposition parties, I can tell you the Conservatives, the Democratic Party has said, look, this is a complete waste of time, even on its best day. Even if this bank was so hot, it was running the four-minute mile. How is it that private investors get their money out of public works again? Does that mean we're going to have highway tolls? Does that mean taxpayers get to pay half the price of a road and then get to pay a toll to drive on the road that they already bought? How is it that private private investors get their return out of public works. The theory being, there's a reason these have been public utilities for the last hundred years. Because if you're going to have a purely private public venture, such as a streetcar system, the fares are going to go high, or you're going to have to regulate the fares, and then you drive out the private investment. I don't think this is high economic theory, Todd. I think this is really 19th century economic thought. There are MPs who can't wait to kill. Number one, number one, it's not even on the privatization list. Number one on the shutdown list. Number one on that hit parade after the next election, unless the incumbents are reelected, is shutting down the Canada Infrastructure Bank. And I guess then we'll find out what their bonuses were. Oh, maybe, maybe. I got a feeling the shredders there may be working in overtime if uh, <laughs> if the polls go the wrong way for them. But you're right. There's no way you could privatize that. That would suggest that uh, maybe somebody would want to buy that bank. And I, 
I don't imagine that the, they would have a lot of bidders. Let's move on to another thing. On one hand, I don't want to make fun of this because it's very serious. Uh, but in terms of the execution here, it's going to be hard not to. Uh, a number of years ago, the federal government started working uh, on a monument to victims of communism. Um, and that's an important thing to remember when, when we think about it. Uh, many tens of millions of people died in places like uh, the Soviet Union and uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, a lot of tragedy uh, in terms of victims of, of communism. And so the government wanted to erect a monument there working with people, uh, many of whom had escaped from countries like that. A lot of, a lot of us have uh, family history that ties back to those kinds of tragedies. But yeah, we've been into this project for about a decade now. Maybe I'll leave it to you. Where are we at in building this thing? Well, similar to the Canada Infrastructure Bank, it is not complete. Uh, they uh, are looking at a location of, for anyone who knows Ottawa, it's, uh, it, originally they wanted to put this on the lawn of the Supreme Court. And that didn't work out. It, they were going to have Klieg lights. Uh, it was going to be like a 9-11 memorial, huge beams of light way up into the sky, an amphitheater for 800 people on the lawn of the Supreme Court. Now, that was changed. They moved down the street next to a parking lot. It still remains unconstructed. There have been cost overruns. So this was supposed to be completed. They, they were hoping to complete the circa 2015. We're six years later. They're over 240% over budget. As some people have pointed out, this really is almost a an ironic memorial to communist state planning. Um, it, it, what's interesting, though, is this was my favorite part. We didn't put this in the story. You know, the Department of Public Works always says, we finish our projects on time and on budget. That's because they change the budget and the time and hope no one notices. In this case, this was based on a house tabling by cabinet. They misstated the original budget and hoped no one would remember. They stated the original budget was about three and a half million and went over seven million. The actual original budget was 1.9 million. So quite a bit of inflation. Millions have been spent. It's unfinished. Uh, uh, will this outlive the People's Republic? <laughs> It's possible, Todd. Like Fawensa, a hero to my people, visited the uh, Taiwan. This was circa 1997. He said, I give communist China five years. Luck missed the deadline, perhaps not as badly as federal sponsors of the victim uh, memorial uh, in Ottawa. But it's possible. <laughs> you can dream, my friend, <laughs> that the People's Republic will collapse in China before this memorial is finished. It's yeah. not looking good, Todd. I don't know where the odds makers would put, like if you went to Vegas, I think the odds makers would just look at you blankly trying to figure out which one which one is more likely. So have they started construction? Like, is Have they done anything yet or is this all uh, effort on paper? Well, they had to remediate the soil, all lots in downtown Ottawa. And this is a prime lot. If there's an old lot in downtown Ottawa, you just know there's nothing but lead and mercury in the ground. Ottawa was a lumber town for a long time. 
So the, this, this environmental remediation is very costly and expensive. Then they went with a concrete pour. They've dropped the amphitheater idea. Now they're down to a couple of sort of sweeping, sweeping panels with names on them. There's some a lot of private fundraising going on. They dropped the, the beams of light. We're not going to have that. Um, it's uh, it, <laughs> I, I don't know how you go 240% over budget. When the project gets smaller, I think all of us have been involved in, you know, home refits. And you say, you know, I'd like to, you know, once we've done that, I wonder, maybe we could screen the porch. That's an right. idea. You know, where the project gets bigger. This is yeah. this is the reverse, Todd. The, the, the project gets smaller and the price goes up. It's And not a little bit. Like you went from just under $2 million to $7.5 million, and they're not close to done yet. Man. No, they haven't really started the construction yet. They, they've just they've poured some concrete. They remediated the lot. It's going to be awesome. It really does. It it is an oddly fitting tribute to central planners uh, in uh, in uh, communist countries. This does sound like exactly their kind of handiwork. Man, unbelievable. Okay, I wanted to take a, a little a little journey down, uh, sort of closer to your neighborhood and, and what you're doing at Blacklock's Reporter. You have an interesting relationship with your uh, readers because you're behind a paywall. You don't just fire your, uh, your stories everywhere. They're behind a paywall, which means that you have to have some interaction with your readers. Uh, at very least, they need to send you a few bucks and, and get a subscription. What are you hearing from your readers? What, what, uh, what issues keep coming up from them as you interact with them? What's interesting, uh, Todd, as you mentioned, um, we are paywalled uh, because we neither solicit nor accept any subsidies of any kind. I, I don't think that's a good idea in our business. There is a, a sense, I think, I don't want to overstate it, but this is almost end times in terms of legacy media. And I mean electronic television, you name it, newspapers. There's something has changed, and people know it. Uh, markets are fractured. Audiences are shrinking. They're all over the place. Ironically, there's never been more choice than there was in the past. But it's not good news for legacy media, in particular on the print side, and thus we see increasing demands for now, we understand from the newspaper lobby, permanent subsidies. You know, uh, my father, who was from the old country, used to say he was not a cynical man. He used to say, everything has a price. If, if you can't figure out the price, think harder, because there is nothing free. And a subsidy is not free in our business. It does compromise the recipient. And I think that's been the case in, in the two years since Parliament has directly subsidized newspapers. That's what we hear from our readers. There is a, a degree of this goes beyond cynicism. These are rational, everyday people, Todd. There is distrust. There is a sense that I'm actually being misinformed. I don't think it's conspiracy-minded, and I think there are some mechanical reasons for why the same kind of media report the same kind of stories day after day and will not cover items, stories, investigations, or access to information that we do. People notice and they start to draw conclusions. I will say this. Once you've lost that with your readers, if you don't really have a sense of trust, I guess this goes with everything. 
carpenters, auto mechanics. If you don't really trust your supplier, why would you do business with them? Well, it really matters in our business, the written word or the spoken word. If you don't trust your local media to tell you a depiction of fact of what's happening in Ottawa, they'll never get that back. And you can never top that up with subsidies, Todd. This was the, the irony, the short-sightedness, and forgive me, the stupidity of the publishers asking for subsidies in the first place. Because you cannot be in a shrinking market with dwindling trust and account for that with more and more subsidies. It's like filling up Lake Huron with a teaspoon. You can't do it. When that bond is broken with your readership, your viewership, your audience, it's gone forever. They will never come back. Very dark times in legacy media. Very bright times in startups and choice. But it's, it's, we live in a spirited, lively age when it comes to media. We'll, we'll look at what you're doing with your podcast, Todd. I mean, that fills a market niche that simply didn't exist before, but it exists now and it's thriving. Yeah, it's interesting. I think back to my very brief time as a, as a reporter in small community newspapers. One of the things that always strikes me about thinking back to that time is on occasion, I would hear what uh, our advertisers' opinions were on something I wrote. Sometimes I would hear the opinions of some of my sources as to what they thought of how, the way I quoted them, sometimes favorably and sometimes otherwise, as I'm sure you can imagine. One of the things I almost never remember hearing is what the readers thought. It wasn't part of the conversation. And one of the things that was back when we when the model was based on advertising. Now, if media isn't listening to what readers and viewers think, but are rather tailoring their uh, planning to grant applications, even if you leave aside censorship or chilling or any of the effect, those kind of effects, just the lack of conversation between yourself and the customer is a very dangerous uh, connection to break. And it strikes me that that's, that seems to be a big problem. Media doesn't seem to be listening to the people very well. It has to be fatal, Todd. I mean, it's the law of gravity. Used to be an old time producer, CBC down in Toronto, would say, you know, we get, you guys in the private sector always taking shots at us for our programming. Eric Kosh was his name. He said, I have an audience of one, and it's the Minister of Heritage, and that's all I need. I I just need the the audience of one to pass my appropriation bill. Well, their audience is shrinking. It's the the decline in the the nation's public broadcasters, CBC, the decline in their audience numbers is absolutely startling, especially if you're of a certain age. You remember like Don Messer's Jubilee? This was square dancing, Todd. They'd get three million viewers. They don't get 3 million viewers on election night anymore. On election night, there will be people who will not watch them. The marketplace is never wrong. It is the iron law in capitalism, and we're all capitalists. Whatever your political stripe in this country, the marketplace, which is people, they are never wrong. If they don't want to come and see you play hockey, it's not their problem. It's yours. And 
the big brains that are running corporate media in this country got that wrong. Yeah, it's interesting. The election night um, point is an interesting one because the facts are readily available. I don't particularly need them filtered through whatever panel on whatever network. I can just hit refresh on my phone and know exactly how many uh, poll results in. If you're that kind of nerd, you're doing that kind of uh, refreshing. It's easy to do. You don't need them. And when so much of it is based on sort of innuendo and speculation and Frankly, I'm pretty sure the folks behind the desk don't know that much more than I do about why voters are doing what they did. Uh, it seems less necessary to, to watch for four hours or whatever. I'm interested, you don't live in a vacuum. I'm sure you, you have uh, friends in, uh, in the media uh, and in legacy media. What, do those, uh, what are those folks saying? What, how do they feel about what's going on? Well, I think they're sad and scared and depressed. But, you know, it's a hard life. I mean, feel free to, you know, uh, get a startup and become independent, get ready to suffer. But, you know, uh, this is change. Uh, change is part of life. The industry is changing. In my opinion, uh, the media industry in Canada is not a world beater. I don't think we're even a G7 beater. I think we're pretty mediocre. But there is a lot of choice out there, and there's new startups. I regret legacy media across the board in all formats for no other reason than I, I think they take up the space. Uh, but, you know, if, if a newspaper died in your town tomorrow, it's not like news would disappear. You just might have more choice. My favorite is, God bless them, the Winnipeg Free Press. Last time we looked at their finances. Government of Canada subsidies were equal to a majority of their net income. It was 53%. When 53% of your net income is welfare, you don't have a business anymore. And it shows in their coverage. What happens in Winnipeg if the free press dies tomorrow? Well, I guess you'll get three startups and you'll get better coverage. Is that what we want? I thought that's what we wanted. I'm not a fan of government interference or regulation. I don't think it's because necessarily the government is conniving or cynical. I just don't think they know what they're doing. And I know in this case, because I know this business, I know the Department of Heritage doesn't know what it's doing. The audience has left. Todd, when the crowd leaves the arena, you're dead. And that's where they are. You can pay that hockey team all you want. No one's watching the game. Go where the audience is. They will tell you what they want. They're very expressive. Very expressive people, Canadians. And if you want to get advice as to where they went, I'm not sure the Ministry of Heritage would be the place I'd go. Uh, they seem about uh, as clued into that as the infrastructure bank is on building things. Let's talk about some of the positive, though. What are you hearing from, from your subscribers? What are they telling you, and how do, they, how do they feel about what you're trying to do there? Well, there's a couple of interesting developments. One is people will pay for news. The publishers really blew this. They, they didn't understand the Internet. This goes back to 1995. And I mean, you know, there, there were large corporations, corporate media. The CBC didn't understand it. They didn't really understand the internet, and they thought it would be like my own little billboard. I'm, I'm going to have, you know, there's 33 million 
people in Canada who have desktop computers and mobile devices, and I'm going to use that as my little billboard. I'm going to give away content for free. I'm going to make it on clicks. Anyone who understands accounting could tell them that wouldn't work. We've been paywalled from the day we started, just like old times. The other thing is choice. People like choice a lot. You know, there was a time, this is not ancient history. You say, uh, you pick a year, say 1950. If you were the member of parliament for Red Deer, you would subscribe to seven newspapers in your office and you would read them every day because they were all different. They were fiercely independent and everyone knows what independence means. It means you don't like taking orders. It covered the political spectrum, party, press, harsh critics, you name it. You would subscribe to the Edmonton Bulletin. That was a liberal paper. Lethbridge Herald, that was a liberal paper. Red Deer Advocate. You would subscribe to the Calgary Albertan. That was a social credit paper. Edmonton Journal. I could go down the list. What are you getting now? What are you getting now? Let's just put aside the Red Deer Advocate for a moment. Is there a perceptible difference in the content? I don't think there is. I don't think readers think there is either because readership is going down. Readership of the Winnipeg Free Press is down terribly. It's down 14% in five years. That's disastrous. <laughs> this is some business they've got going. 53% welfare, and my readership is declining. I mean, I don't have to be the amazing Kreskin to foresee the future. Readers tell us they're willing to pay for news, but it better be good hmm. because it's money, and it's real money. So it has to be about content. And when you do that, we have a very low attrition rate. What I mean by that is Blackbox is not for everybody, and this is not a sales pitch, Todd. People who like it like it a lot. And we have resubscription rates that are very high. They're better than the industry standard, even though we're not, that, we're not cheap. It's $314 a year. That's real money, and it's cash on the barrel for the whole year. We don't bill by the month. Very simple charge right up front. But people who get into that, they get it. I pay for specialty content that I can't get anywhere else. I think that's happening now, and I wish we could have more of it in this country. But it's very hard if you're a startup in Winnipeg competing with this elephant across the street that's white and is getting 53% subsidies. How do you compete with that if you're in Winnipeg? It's pretty tough. It's an interesting thing, but it's interesting to watch innovation, if not from uh, the big papers to see uh, startups firing it up. Listen, Tom, it's been great chatting with you. I enjoy reading. Uh, well, I should that's enjoy isn't quite the right word. I, I read a lot of what you write with animation. And, and it uh, makes you to, hot and angry. I have to look around the room and see if my children are with you in your shot before I verbalize some of my thoughts at times. But in any case, what you do is uh, is hugely valuable. It's valuable, frankly, to the work we do here at the Taxpayers Federation. Uh, just for our listeners, thank you so much for listening. We do have a petition on uh, on the website. Uh, we'll have it in the show notes to scrap C10. Listen. I recognize the government's trying to fire this through. One thing I've learned is it's hard to predict exactly where the government is going to or what's going to happen in politics. And the fight's never really over. Even if they pass it, we can scrap it. It's happened before and uh, we can stand together. We'll also have a link to Black Locks Reporter. Listen, uh, we don't make any money uh, having Tom on here. We have him on because he brings value. And value is something that's important. Black Locks Reporter costs money, uh, but you get what you pay for. I think that's true with news uh, as well as uh, a lot of other things. So, uh, you know, we'll have a link up to, to Black Locks Reporter. And uh, Tom, 
once again, uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, I'll let you get back to your hawk-like perch uh, watching over Ottawa. <laughs> I, I enjoy it very much. Thank you for speaking with me, Todd. I thank you kindly. Have a good one. <laughs>